Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Today, I am super excited to be able to bring to to you a podcast with Tim McCartney-Snape. I'm sure this is a household name for many of us. As we know Tim McCartney Snape to be the first Australian ever to climb Mount Everest. But more, more than this was Tim's extraordinary journey from sea level to the summit of Mount Everest, his expedition which he called Sea to Summit, and won prizes in seven countries for the best mountain film which he documented along the way. He did the last ascent from base camp without the assistance of Sherpas, climbers, or bottled oxygen. And it, ever since then, has actually still been the only person to ever achieve this feat. I sat down with Tim McCartney-Snape in the back office of Find Your Feet, and uh, it felt very fitting to do the podcast there because we actually stock a huge amount of his product uh, from Cedar Summit. See, Tim is a founder of Cedar Summit, an Australian company which produces a wide range of outdoor equipment for all of us as travellers and expeditioners, and also brings in a lot of other product from other brands uh, as a distributor through Australia. So I was really, really interested to talk to Tim about his business ideals and also his mountaineering adventures, to know beyond his achievements what makes him tick and how has this humble person reached the epitome of mountaineering in Australia. He has been twice honoured as an Order of Australia recipient as well. But there's another side to Tim which you might, I guess, identify with in this podcast, and this is his role as the founding director and patron of the World Transformation Movement. The World Transformation Movement tries to bring to you an understanding of the human condition. And as we get deep into this discussion, you'll realise that Tim is a very spiritual man. In this podcast, we talk a lot about ego and insecurity, about empowerment and self-compassion, about living in the future, not in your past. We talk a lot about the pressures that we receive from society, both internal and external, and also try to understand what drives Tim in his quest for being the best version of himself. Look, I didn't see eye to eye with Tim on everything that we discussed in this podcast. And when you listen to it, you'll hear my hesitations and probably even my thought processes as I try to come to a strong understanding of exactly what Tim is talking about, because it brings new ideas that I think many of us have never heard before. It raised a lot of further questions. I could sit down with him for hours on end. And yet in this short one-hour podcast, I think we got fairly deep under the skin of Tim. I love this podcast. I'm, I had to re-listen to it myself a few times. And I hope that the ending where we bounce a lot of short questions towards Tim also gets your toes tingling and has you raising questions about this extraordinary mountaineer, businessman and just Tim in general. Enjoy this podcast.
Tim, thank you so much for coming in today. My, my pleasure. So what are you down here for today? Well, every couple of years, Cedar Summit does a roadshow where we go around the main centres, invite all the, uh, the staff from outdoor shops to come along and uh, hear what exciting new gear we have. Yeah. Tim, you're so well known these days across so many walks of life. I think the two that, you know, for me are the most obvious and probably for our audience is your mountaineering exploits, particularly around becoming the first Australian to climb Everest and also the first person to walk from sea level to the summit of Everest. But yeah, also then for your work or foundation of Cedar Summit, the brand, which has become a global phenomenon across our industry, the outdoor industry. I guess if if that's how I introduce you, how how would you introduce yourself? Like, who is Tim? <laughs> well, um, I was a boy who loved climbing trees. Um, <laughs> I loved to climb hills and look at the view. And I was always interested in what was around the corner. Mm. And so, but I did like the physical physical aspect of uh, of going up, whether it's a tree a hill or, or a rock face. And, um, well, I did then. I discovered skiing. I love going down as well. But I think it was just a, a natural um, desire to to explore the world, the natural world, which uh, led me to climbing. And obviously, you know, one has to make a living somehow. And I, I kind of struggled early on finding a, something that I liked doing and Eventually, my um, practical side, um, because I do like making things, um, sort of landed in a good spot when I met uh, my business partner, Roland, and we started to see the summit. So you got into, you were born in Tanzania, moved to Australia with your family when you were, was it about 11 years old? Thereabouts? Yeah, yeah, almost yeah. 12, yeah. And then... After schooling through the Timbertop Outdoor Program at Geelong Grammar, you went to the ANU Mountaineering, well, sorry, ANU to study and became involved in the Mountaineering Club. So is that where you really fostered that love of climbing and adventure? Yeah, that's where I got my first opportunity at school at Timbertop, bushwalking and then a bit of skiing. But then at the ANU, the the climbing club, allowed me to discover climbing and then uh, New Zealand and then the Himalaya and it, um, the thing about the Himalaya is that it's uh, <laughs> the funny thing is because I'm from Australia we don't have any high mountains so New Zealand's good but uh, it doesn't, it's nothing compared to the Himalaya when mm. I went to the Himalaya actually I never, for a long time didn't. I never went alpine climbing anywhere else, all my alpine climbing for a long time was in the Himalaya which um, is a bit unusual because, you know, if you come from Europe, then you obviously do a lot in the European Alps or in America you do plenty of opportunity there. But um, The thing about the Himalaya is it's got that added um, degree of difficulty due to the altitude. Mm. And although it's not very pleasant, it's the, the funny thing is when you go out and do these things, it's the... the, the uh, you you are looking for something that tests you, that yeah. pushes you, and there's nothing like altitude to push you. It is, it's seriously. Uh, every time I go back there, oh, why on earth am I doing this again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, 
I first met you, Tim, when we were, we heard you speak. We actually organised one of your keynote presentations down here in Hobart, and it was just after Andrew Locke had spoken, and, and he was the first Australian to climb all the 8,000-metre peaks in the world, or the highest ones, I should say. And what struck me the most about you was the attitude in which you took when you went into the mountains like you you weren't carefree but you could tell that there was a humbleness and a not a relaxedness I don't even know the right word but the humbleness is something that I sort of comes to my mind about your exploits on Everest um, particularly when you told that story do you think I mean, do you, would you agree with that kind of comment compared to some of the other ways of mountaineering these days? Which well, I hope so. I mean, you know, it's um, one does have to be um, mindful of the um, one's insecurities, and mm-hmm. um, you know, all of us are insecurities to varying degrees, and. Um, that can lead us to, and especially men, I think, it, you know, I have to admit that, um, to be egotistical. I mean, we've all got egos. We all do, yeah. But, um, so, yes, we're mindful of being, letting your ego become too dominant mm. because uh, it, beca- it can become an unstoppable force. And for me, nature has always been a... A restorative thing in that regard because it it, it it has brought me back down to earth and and it makes you realise that um, really the um, just how how inconsequential you are mm. uh, as an individual, but also how how wonderful the the world is to be you know to be able to enjoy being out in, in the natural world and you know when you go up. One of the motivations for me to go outside, particularly to the mountains, is just how, how you know you, the incredible situations that you can find yourself in, and when you're in that, it puts you in a state of mind to be able to contemplate uh, the, the the beauty of mm-hmm. of uh, the world, and um, that 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 is a I think is a great leveler, and. But you can get in the headspace where you want to uh, achieve, and you you know it's a it's really a cruel cruel thing that we do to ourselves mm. to make ourselves um, you know um, do better than anyone else. Um, I think the most powerful foot- bit of documentary footage I've seen ever was when I don't know if you remember Andrew McCauley. He, he was a climber. He was a um, an amazing adventurer, really. But his passion was paddling, and he set off from Tasmania to paddle a sea kite to New yeah. Zealand. And before he left, he uh, he was recorded on camera. Um, the the dilemma in his mind was, you know, it was on his. He's wearing it on both shirt sleeves. It was like it was so painful to watch because. He knew he was heading out into something. He he knew he'd set himself this challenge, which would most probably kill him. Yet he couldn't stop himself from doing it. Mm. Um, and that is, you know, we're all capable of that. But well, I can see the glow in your eyes. Do you 
do you align to that in some way of any of the adventures that you've been on felt in that sense of high level risk taking or do you feel like there's always been a calculated level of risk that you can accept I think the there's there's a moment in in any adventure where you become committed and really the adventure doesn't really take off until that point mm. once you become committed then uh you know the magic happens the trouble is though um how much you know the question is how much do you commit yourself to mm. what level of risk are you prepared to take and that's always a difficult question uh you mm. know, if you're embarking on a, on a trip across an ocean that's a that's a you know, it's a very um, you, you you are putting yourself in a in a very vulnerable position. At least on a mountain, um, you, you might you might put yourself in a place where uh, in, in a position of no return. But um, yeah, that's the you know you always got to have a a bit of a backup plan. Mm. Uh, how you, you know if you get caught in, in bad conditions, can you batten down the hatches? Um, can you um, just uh, go into survival mode until conditions get better and um, with experience I think you're the more experience you have the more able you are to uh, put in place um, plans that you you know, can avoid those all those pitfalls. yeah but I loved what you talked about about like you get to a point where you obviously hatch an idea or a dream and then you you might have that you might carry that for years but then you reach a point of commitment and then there's kind of like it's you just know you have to go through with it yeah but I'm thinking about it for myself coming from you know more the backgrounds of elite sports but where there's been I'd call them goals but even up until you're standing on the start line, you haven't completely committed to that. Do you know what I mean? And then yep. even when you're racing it, it's like you haven't got your whole self in that in that event or in that mode. Have you ever had moments in your time, especially with the mountaineering and your alpine sort of adventures or expeditions where you suddenly find yourself out there and going, wow, you know, I'm, I'm mentally I haven't got myself yep, I have. here. Yep, yeah, I have, and that's... Um that's a bad place to be in. Yeah. It is a bad place to be in because um, everything becomes harder. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, it was a very valuable lesson to learn because, I mean, I was lucky in it and things I did always um, always found that I had no trouble committing, getting that commitment to happen and, you know, all the time. And it, and it just drives you, gives, it gives you an energy which... Um, not so much an energy, but a uh, freeness of mind to mm. be nimble in what you're doing and yes. be able to change the plan so that you you you, you get success no matter it's what. It's like happens. there's an inner quietness when you find that commitment, yeah, isn't there? There is. Yeah. 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 And if you don't have it, then um, you know I think the most sensible thing is to you know call it quits. And are you thinking of a particular time, like a particular expedition as we're talking about this point where you were uncommitted but found yourself out there in the mountains? Or I think so. I think so. And, and in a way, um, I was invited on, a, on an expedition to K2. It was a, kind of a last-minute um, cobbled-together trip, but um, someone got some money. <laughs> actually it was to get some background footage for a film called K2. Mm-hmm. And so they had this money that could pay for the expedition. 
and uh, they thought, wow, you know, we'll we'll um, organise a trip, and they got a great group of climbers together. It was, it was a really good group of climbers, and we headed off. But um, because of the kind of last minute put together in the you know in the fairly um, soon before the trip happened, no one had made made a psychological commitment, which I think is really. Uh, to make a psychological commitment, it's it's something you need to engage your imagination in, mm. and it takes time. You can't just do it. Um, you can't just take your imagination off the shelf and put it into action. Yeah. It's got to grow organically. And I feel that also too, what you're talking about is the the dream came from within someone else, or the yeah. idea came from within someone else. Do you believe that we ever? Um, set ourselves our own adventure or our own expedition or I, I don't like the word goal so yeah our, our own vision and not commit do you think that's possible to have those two so do you know what I mean like when you yeah when the ideas come from deep within you and it's bubbled up from somewhere do you think you ever not commit to that I feel like for me the non-committing is when a sponsor or an event organizer or someone else says hey come and do this for us and you're like oh oh, oh, gosh I hadn't thought about that and that's kind of where my fear of commitment kind of almost comes from yes I think I agree with that um but there are times where someone else's idea can coalesce with yours yes um because you've had a similar um dream or you know it might not be exactly the same but you can mold it to um to to what the, the, the other person's plan is yeah and or and maybe modify the other person's plan but yeah i think it's really vital that to get that commitment to feel that you are you know 100% in mm. the other thing is you know once you make the commitment then you know you set off on this um, journey, but don't um, don't make it a train line where you can't get off. You know, it's got to be rather than the train line, it's got to be um, you know pass through the woods or something like that, where yeah. you know you can decide where to go all you know all yeah. the way along. You're you're uh, remaining flexible as to where you might end up, or yeah. how you might you know you've got um, no rigid um, adherence to. Uh, a set plan because you know if, it, if it's out in the, in the wild then anything can happen you can't predict yeah. what's going to happen and your wild is wild like we're talking about super alpine peaks <laughs> globally do you mind me going back and asking what what the what the not fall out the you know, what occurred on K2 to make it something that you wouldn't want to go back and repeat without commitment uh, yeah, I think, um, well, actually, in the end, the weather played, the okay. conditions played the, the bigger part for me deciding to pull the plug on it. But also the fact that I hadn't... I, I did want to climb K2 because I spent the previous year nearby on another mountain and I thought it'd be kind of cool to, to climb K2 because I saw it there and I was wondering myself being up there. But uh, at the time, I wasn't interested in climbing a previously climbed route mm. and we picked um, a, a, new, a possible new route but when we got there we discovered that it was too dangerous mm. so you know that we, and the problem was we didn't have 
a plan B for another route. And I think we, would, we basically needed more time uh, beforehand to really get, um, get our mojo together. Mm. And so, you know, every time we, 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 want, we were wanting to do a pure alpine style ascent, which means you basically get to the bottom of the mountain and you start climbing and, and you try and get to the top. And if you don't get to the top, you come back down again. Um, but you don't fix any ropes, you don't fix any camps. It's just a, a pure ascent from bottom to top. With acclimatisation before you... Yes, acclimatisation beforehand yeah. on, on other peaks. Yeah. But every time we went to about 6,500 metres on other peaks, we encountered quite dangerous snow conditions, mm. avalanche prone. And uh, we assumed that would be the case on K2. There was uh, a large Japanese expedition on the regular route on K2 and uh, they confirmed that. The same conditions were occurring on K2, and in the end, after I think about six weeks, um, being thwarted every time on well on three occasions at six and a half thousand metres around, I decided that you know it just wasn't going to happen, mm. um, and uh, so I left. And the, and the rest of the team uh, tried to climb a variation of. Um, Kind of a new route, but um, uh, but it um, you know they were thwarted by bad conditions as well. So and in th- that year, no one climbed the mountain because right. they just didn't improve. And um, there was a, a sadly an accident. Um, one guy died on our team, but in a Japanese team. Wow! And that was due to the snow conditions. So um, I think um, you know it's a very very important trait to have to be able to. Say no. Mm. And that's that's a relevant comment across lots of walks of life as well, but especially in the mountains. Do you, you are a man of many firsts. Like I said, first man from Australia on Everest, first person to walk from sea level in the Bay of Bengal up to the summit of Everest, which I understand was not an easy trip in itself when you got towards the top. Uh, correct? Yeah, no, it was good. It was... Um, you know, when I first thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, it's a bit tedious walking all the way from the Bay of Bengal. But when I really, now I sort of thought about it a bit more, I thought, well, actually, it's a very, it, you know, it'd be a good experience to mm. walk across. If you look at a map of the world and see the most populous parts, that is it. That is one of the most populated yeah. places. There's very few where half the world's population live. And the that Gangetic Delta is one of the, one of the areas where... Um, you know, it is very, very heavily populated. It's quite interesting to walk through such a landscape, especially when the people are living mm. off the land and they're very fertile. It's intensively farmed, and um, you know, once you get into Nepal, of course, it all changes. Yeah. The mountains. It's a very abrupt change. Yeah. And I think um, I didn't really. You try walking a long distance on flat terrain. You know. Every day is the same, just flat, flat, flat. You get incredibly blisters. Mm. You get really blistered feet. Mm. Uh, I guess maybe you could have done a bit more training walking on flat ground. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But my question, I guess, was going to be what what drives you in these in anything really? I mean, I'm interested in how you've gone from this to 
setting up a business to working as a guide for World Expedition to being involved heavily in a foundation and we'll get to that in a moment but underlying all of these adventures is it to be first to succeed in something that no one's done before or is it something that deeper level than that for you? I think it's a deeper level I think really it's it's um for me it's about exploration and Walking from sea level to the summit of Everest was not too much about exploration, except on a personal level it was. I was interested to see what it would be like, but mm. um, that was a more, I guess, um, uh, more esoteric reason was to do have a complete ascent. I thought it would be it's just a nice story to climb the whole of a mountain, and um, what better one than the highest mountain? Um, I think there's an element of um, egotism in there, being the first. Um, I probably wouldn't have been interested if it, if I, you know, being the second person to do it, and it would have been harder to get funding anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I suppose I had an eye on, eye on the, uh, on the um, fact that that, that it might um, give me a little bit of notoriety, which I could use somehow. And and um, well, in fact, I did. I started a business on it. Yeah. But, um, the I was also motivated by the um, curiosity as to how I would handle being on a big mountain on my own. Turned out it wasn't such a good choice because it's hard to be on your own on on a mountain like Everest. Even back in 1990, there were six other expeditions at base camp. But I was interested in just how the, the challenge of being alone on a, on a mountain because I'd always climbed with other people and well you know that you get a lot of support from your team members mm. um, and um, yeah I, I think it was um, one thing I found was that it was it was a lot harder um, in some ways it's easier you don't have to wait for anyone <laughs> um, and you can just get off and do what you want but it was so boring, you know, not, not sharing the experience with anyone else. Yeah. At least at the time. And How did you cope with that isolation up there? Was it a... Were you using mindfulness? Were you, was it a mindset thing? Or did you just kind of get on with the job attitude? Uh, I think I tried to make myself feel at home as much as possible, which I do anyway. And when you feel really at home somewhere, then um, you, you can relax I did find it hard to chop, stop the chatter in my brain, though. I found I was having a constant conversation with myself, <laughs> and which is kind of annoying after a while, which I uh, sort of tried to um, calm that down. I think it did calm down after a while. But, yeah. Was it on that summit of Everest that you were quoted saying it is time to climb the mountains of the mind? Yeah. Was that yeah, it? Yeah. Was that coming from that same place or...? Was that a different... Yes, it is coming from the same place because at the time I was... Um, a couple of years prior, I'd met a, a really interesting guy called Jeremy Griffith and uh, he started talking to me about um, the, uh, the origins of consciousness and uh, he's a biologist and he was talking about um, uh, our ape ancestors and uh, the similar... You know, the, the lessons we can learn from uh, current um, members of the primate family and um, 
you know, a lot of analogous behaviour there. And uh, it all sounded really interesting. And anyway, I started um, getting to have an understanding of his ideas and it all made sense to me as to how uh, we as humans are um, somewhat embattled. Um, we have this wonderful, um, incredible brain. I mean, it's unique in the universe as far as we know because we're fully conscious, whereas every other uh, of our animal cousins is not fully conscious. Conscious, We are the only animal that's able to um, have a memory of past events and compare them. So we, we can... Uh, have an experience, uh, have a collection of experiences, make a comparison of them, with them, associate them, and start to make sense of uh, of existence. Hence, uh, we we're able to, you know, have this incredibly sophisticated technology, language, a rich culture, um, etc. Whereas uh, other animals are really still even though there may be rudimentary elements of awareness there, they're still really um, beholden to instinct. So you're saying that as a human, we can learn from past experiences and adapt our ways going forwards based on our past experiences? Is yeah. that what you're trying to say? Yes, that, that's, yeah. what, that's, okay. what con- that's what being fully yeah. conscious is. Yeah. Hence, um, how we can start to understand the world. However... Um, we do seem to be. Um, we are treading on a on a on thin ice psychologically because you only have to. I had a really um, uh, it was an awful experience actually. A friend of mine from school had a, quite high achieving parents. They put a lot of pressure on him not to go to university to go to agriculture college. He defied them, went to university, and while we were on a bushwalk, he had a nervous breakdown, mm. and it was totally due to the pressure of his expectations and his battle with his father and mm. all that sort of stuff. And he, he, from being a totally normal person, overnight he went to a... He was, he was a basket case. You know, we had to carry him out. And it made me realise that, you know, our, our hold on, uh, on sanity is, 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 is tenuous. And why is that? And, and um, there, there is, uh, at base... Uh, the human condition, uh, capacity for being capable of producing great works of art, appreciating incredible, the wonderful music, and our capacity for destruction and cruelty is unparalleled in the animal kingdom. There's not we're the only species that can do that, and, and that's well, it, it seems crazy that we can live in a paradox of love and yet hate all at the same time, mm. that you could right. wake up loving your partner next to you and be able to walk out the door and hate mm. a yeah. form of humanity. Yeah, it is. And that, and that all comes down to the fundamental insecurity which we're burdened with by being fully conscious because uh, full, full consciousness uh, came into existence over overlaying an already existing way of thinking, which was our instincts. And all our other animal relatives are are still bound to, but we have, in a sense, broken free of that by 
becoming fully conscious, but there is um, a burden uh, with being that because um, as our consciousness developed, there inevitably had to be a conflict between instinct, an instinctively controlled self and a, and a consciously, fully consciously controlled self. If we had not disobeyed our instincts, we wouldn't have developed full consciousness. So it was a, it's a next step in the um, journey of life because and kind of like well, our ape ancestors or our ape cousins are in, in a kind of infancy just getting towards an infancy our ape ancestors which are more advanced than the current apes are in, in their childhood and now we're, we are the products of that are in our adolescence and we're still um, you know learning to cope with it and, and uh, my oh well, I know that a full understanding of that situation will bring us into uh, adulthood, adulthood where as a species we can like adults um, manage uh, our well reach our full potential that, that consciousness can have which all the, all the ideals that um, have ever been dreamed up by, or been, been not dreamed up, all, all the ideals which have been expressed by the great prophets through the ages have been just that. that yeah. You know, we, we need to, we need to, uh, love is the meaning of life, mm. and uh, we need to be able to be free to explore ideas in order to come up with a solution to this. So y- you are the founding director and patron of the human transformation movement. Yeah. Oh, which, world transformation. Sorry, world transformation movement, yeah. which originally was called the Foundation for Humanity's Adulthood. That's right. So why the changing name and what is the name trying to represent? Is it you want us to continue to evolve as humans but to grasp greater concepts of love and compassion and less of this sort of hatred and other side that we carry around like yeah, yeah. so um, originally the, the foundation for humanity's adulthood um, is says uh, that well it just expresses that um, what I was just trying to explain that mm. that um, we are on the cusp of adulthood but uh, in order to achieve that, we need to take on board the fact that we are uh, good and not bad because we're all insecure in the fact that we think we're bad. When we were born, uh, we're a perfectly instinctively oriented individual and uh, the instincts that humans have, our main instinctive orientation, if you go back a couple of million years in our development, was one of loving cooperation because that's how that's how well, that's what nurtured our current um, form of our brain into existence. It was maternalism, which um, trained the infant in unconditional love, um, and and so an inf- all infants are born with an expectation to be unconditionally loved. That's so true. But. But every now, almost every one of us now is burdened with this um, insecurity. So even a mother, even the most loving mother, is going to be somewhat insecure because 
as we quickly find out um, in infancy, the world isn't perfect like that. Yeah. Well, even the other day I found myself saying to someone in a moment of frustration, I feel like it's conditional love. You know, there's, you know, and it was around decisions and and that's, that's the words that were coming out. But so if we were to take these concepts that you're raising around the fact that hum, humans as a whole are, are breaching into adulthood and a greater understanding of the fact that we we are coming from a place of unconditional love and we, we should hold on to the love and the feeling of Well, well it's very hard to, to hold on to the love because most of us, basically we, we struggle through our childhood and... Uh, you know, we sort of learned learning who we are and all that sort of stuff. And by the time we reach our teenage years, uh, we come to uh, basically an impasse, and um, most of us re- resign ourselves at one point during adolescence to um, to living life um, somewhat fraudulently because we, we we know that we it's too hard to hang on to the ideals, so we just give up on the ideals, and we just everyone else is doing it. I'm going to give up on that and I'm just going to look after me and but we feel you know we, we there is we underneath it all we feel enormous guilt for that but well there's, there's a name for that it's called the imposter syndrome so where you feel like you are an imposter like you're yeah. not you're yeah. not real you're not yeah. doing That's it for exactly the right it. reasons yeah. I I hear that big time as we're speaking <laughs> like, yeah. right okay yeah. so so but the fundamental truth is we are all good and, and we only like we are for, for a very... Um, there's an entirely understandable reason for why we're like that. And once you understand that, uh, you know, we, we don't have to worry about proving ourselves, we do not have to worry about that, the, 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 the basic story of humanity is one of, of goodness and... You know that fall from grace, to use a you know a biblical sort of um, language, it was uh, unavoidable because mm-hmm. it's just part of the journey of becoming, of 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 achieving full consciousness. Now you could say, well, uh, that lot of good that's done us, but why be stuck in the, an, in the in the animal condition? The animals, if you look at animals, so honestly, you look at a herd of uh, wildebeest or a herd of buffalo or any any natural. Um, occurring group of animals and they are in a straitjacket of their own and that is well biologists call it sexual opportunism where um, you'll see uh, say a herd of buffalo they are all the the females are controlled by one dominant male and it can be heard of any animals and then um, you know there's there's a fight for dominance all the time so there's there's a sub herd of of bachelor males that are you know waiting in the wings to take over, and eventually one of them takes over and the other one you know falls off the side. But really, it is there's a lot of tension there in the primates for lots of reasons, um, and you can see that in examples in the various primate groups. You know, they're variously in the processes of getting rid of that, and in our human ancestors, we managed that. It was a very very narrow gap, but we managed to get through that, and so. Um, we got to a point where we were living very cooperatively and that freed up the mind to think truthfully and, and so the brain grew and consciousness developed and then we had this um, 
conflict occurs. But do you feel like humans have evolved, like all humans have evolved at the same rate? No, variously. Because, I, you, I, yeah, that's how I would argue yeah, it. It's that, variously because, yeah. you know, um, if you look at the pattern of human migration and, you know, what happened, um, so you've got hunter-gatherers in Africa and they're, you know, to want of a better word, we call them uh, more innocent because they are closer to our original yeah. um, selves. And uh, then, you, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who have, you know, for, for many thousands of years have grown up in intensively um, uh, in well, populated areas. I was even reading just the other day that it's, it's dependent on the way the continents are shaped. So if the continent is shaped north-south it meant a slower rate of progression as a human species because mm-hmm. you were trying to farm and change agriculture as you went down different temperatures and lights mm-hmm. and things like this. So you had to evolve the seeds and the capacity of the plants to evolve yourself as you progress south or north. Whereas if it was an east to west shaped continent, you could plant the same crop basically east to west across the continent. Does that make sense? So the, yeah, the rate yeah. of progression of human yeah. development occurred much, much faster in well, places like Europe than it did yeah, in well, South America. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, humans pretty well covered the planet before the invention of agriculture. Yeah. And, um, and then where they came across... Um, uh, good conditions for growing and um, plants that you could actually turn into crops. Then uh, you had civilizations develop. But where the civilizations developed the first in the Indus Valley, the uh, you know uh, Euphrates, Tigris uh, Delta, the Yellow River Delta. Um, those three locations are where the oldest civilizations have come from, and. Now you will see that they're also um, peoples who you could say are or civilizations that have peaked. Yeah. Whereas you've got more um, vigorous, um, you know, like the Vikings, for instance, they were they were coming, um, you know, from a sort of a uh, one branch of um, peoples from the middle from Central Asia who went up upper to. Scandinavia at a time when maybe it was more, um, but anyway, they, 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 they had more vigor and, and then they. So the, the, the people are. We're all equal, but we're not the same. Yeah. The races are very different. So, you know, you've got um, the situation in, say, Fiji, where you've got islanders and then you've got um, Indians and Chinese who, who've, you know, my immigrants, and they, you know, the Indians do the control the, yeah. the, the shops and so on the Chinese control all the you know the big businesses and the Fijians are uh, you know the, the indigenous inhabitants they're sort of left um, because they, they don't have the, the work ethic or the, so you know, the drive if I wanted to backpedal a moment yeah. you met Jeremy who obviously was super savvy and obviously it seemed to have a very good but not super savvy but his situation is very unusual and that he grew up, he just had a very, very lucky, very lucky circumstances, unusual circumstances. And, and as yeah, in? In his childhood. Yeah. His mother, his, his father. Uh, it's just rare. I mean, you look at it, he's got uh, three brothers, and they're not the same as him, but he, 
He's someone who didn't. As I said, I was talking about being a teenager, you resign. He didn't resign. He held on to the ideals. You know, when he, he went to university because he, he loved animals and he decided, he did zoology, he decided to come down to Tasmania. He said, well, there's this thylacine which may exist. It's, it's just not right that there might be an animal there which, which is, if we don't find it, it will go extinct for sure. So he came down. He spent six years looking for the. Thylacine. Yeah, I read that he was one of the <laughs> one of the pioneers of hunting for the extinct thylacine. Yeah, that's right. And he, and, and because he was a, such a clean thinker, I'm convinced that it doesn't exist because he would have found it if he really. You talked to him. Oh, uh, don't tell <laughs> me that. I was hoping to, I was hoping to interview someone who believes they still exist. Well, he, he did. But he, he did, <laughs> you know, he he he, wrote, he he blew up a tractor tube and went down the Arthur River. I think wow. he made the first descent. But, you know, he had, he had traps and cameras. and. So he obviously had a huge impact on you, and you said that you met him two... Was it two years prior to this expedition of walking from yeah. sea level to yeah. the summit of Mount Everest? So I'm really curious then. He, he obviously helped instill some of this knowledge and understanding of the human condition in you. I I realised that, um, you you know, part of the drive to climb, to achieve is, is, well, it's very much ego-driven. And it it made me realise so many, because I could could also, I already saw it in um, my fellow climbers, where there's this syndrome, you, you, you go on an expedition, and if you're lucky, you do well. And you come back and, and you think, well, that was a great experience. You get, you get a lot of self-affirmation from that, which is good. It makes you uh, more self-confident. And you think, well, you know, what's next? Mm. And, and there's also an expectation on you to do something as well, you know, from your peers and from society. And so you plan something else. And, and then, you know, if you're lucky, that goes well. And, and so you, you get, kind of get on this... Um, Rat race. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to step back. If you're mindful enough, you have to step back and think, well, what's the, where's this going to end? Uh, I'm just going to keep doing harder and more out there things and, and I'll become a legend. That's what the, that's your ego speaking. Yeah. But, but if you think about it, think, well, A, it's actually a very selfish thing to do because, <laughs> you, you know, it's pretty, take an enormous amount of resources just for me to feel good about myself and, um, and, and I might end up killing myself. Um, a lot of people do that. So did did this thinking impact you on that journey? That's what I'm really interested to know. Like, did it change the way you went about that trip in any form? Yeah, it did. It made me... Um, I think it made me more cautious because I started to realise what was... Um, what was uncontrolled egotism and what was kind of, kind of mindful egotism. So, for instance, I could have... My original plan was to do a traverse of the mountain. So I wanted to climb the West Ridge, which had never been done before by someone climbing alone, and then descend... Climb the West Ridge and descend the South East Ridge. Never been done by anyone climbing alone. Only been done once before by an American expedition using oxygen. And I still think it would have been a very cool thing to do, but uh, in the course of events... There was a big snowfall on, and the West Ridge, when that happens, on the, the West Ridge becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. There's just there's definite avalanche danger there. And so 
I was faced with a dilemma. Do I risk it um, and, you know, go up there and potentially get avalanched off or go so slow that I succumb to altitude sickness? Or um, do I just um, reduce my ambitions a little bit and go the normal way? And I decided that, yeah, no, I should go the normal way because of the... Um, Consequences of taking that much of a risk were, were I, I thought, too, too severe. So, do you practice or study the processes of mindfulness and meditation, or is it some? Is it does it come from your experiences out on the mountains or climbing? No, it really comes from my understanding of of the human condition. How. How, how driven we are by ego, by our insecurities, and uh, I, because I'm a, um, I'm a kind of a, if you're looking for an exhibit, I'm a perfect exhibit of a, what we call um, a male who's a, a must winner. I have this, um, I do have an extremely competitive side to me, and it. I've known this since I was quite young, and it scared me. And I've <laughs> and I've pulled back from it because it scared me. I've pulled back and whoa, that's that's um, I just intuit had this intuitive feeling that it wasn't healthy, which is lucky for me. So, anyway, so <laughs> um, so I'm being aware of that and and understanding uh, Jeremy's explanation of of the actual mechanics of the psychology of that has, um, you know, made me temper my position, but I, I've still, um, I suppose I'm too much um, wedded to what I find good about my modus operandi in life, you know, I, and um, there are members of the, uh, the World Transformation Movement who, who actually have been transformed. Now, so it's not weird. It's simply them realising that uh, the, the fundamental truth that they're good, they don't have to worry about their, all their childhood insecurities um, and that the, you know, the true purpose in life is to just um, understand that human beings are fundamentally good, that we whatever um, um, criticism we have of ourselves because we're, we're greedy, we're selfish, um, you know, we're very uh, we, we egotistical. Um, they are there. They've, they've been there for a very good reason. And once you understand that, uh, we no longer necessarily have to wake up every day and feel guilty because we're like that that we are actually uh, we can leave that behind because the the real explanation for why we are the way we are is that when we were young we had this unrealistic expectation of being unconditionally unconditionally loved. loved we weren't and that led us led us variously to be or led us to be variously insecure and that has shaped our lives uh, once you realise that 
you can let go of it and just live for the greater good, which um, I've kind of experienced it like deep within me for moment momentarily, but it's the trouble with the brain is um, it, I mean consciousness is simply a um, a massive pathways of, of thought pathways in our in our mind, and habits are the ones that we get we use the most, and that's the problem. Once they become ingrained, that's what a habit is. It's, it's an ingrained behaviour. So to break that is quite is very hard. But um, becoming a transformed human is simply a matter of, of breaking those habits. I think it, if I'm right in understanding all of this. I hear that we can drop this sort of critical brain that we carry around with us that stems... I was talking about it recently with a psychologist on our last podcast, actually, Jeremy Adams, and he was talking about how we have this inner ghost, like this hungry ghost in us that is very hard to fulfil. Yep. always wants more yep. and you can never satisfy it. Yep. So I, I hear that. My, my question, though, comes about modern society and this I mean modern society almost demands more and more and we've got social media which is a place where you only put up your greatest moments or your prettiest pictures and we're kind of forming a culture and a society around more is better greater is better prettier is better you know faster paced life how how does one hold such a strong sense of self and self-righteousness, not self-righteousness, that's not going to be the right word, but feeling good about oneself given all of that sort of busyness and confusion in our modern cultures, particularly in the Western world, I guess. Well, that's the thing. You're right. As a species, we are becoming more and more insecure um, because, um, you know, today's parents... uh, are not going to be as reinforcing as yesterday's parents, simply because um, it's a com- it's a compounding situation. So um, you get someone born, and they you know they get a certain amount of reinforcement, but um, obviously not enough. And so they grow up, and um, they're going to be that much more insecure than their parents were. I'm not talking in general. Yeah, but... And, and so, and also, you know, I've got this modern phenomenon where we have, um, you know, children growing up in, in single-parent families, mm. which is, puts, it's, it's massively more um, in, in, inductive to the child being insecure. So if we take then the challenges and, and in some ways I'm sure people would say this is like a very negative concept that it's very hard to feel good in modern society but if we wanted to turn that round into a positive like what do you hope that people take away from the understanding they developed through the foundation or from listening to this podcast now like how can we how can we be stronger in ourselves um, do you believe does it does that tie in with Cedar Summit and the brand and getting people out in nature and out on adventures and I hope so. I think um, our link to, to the natural world, as I was saying in the beginning, is, is, is really important because it does bring us back to the fundamental basics. It does, um, it does give us access to joy, a real joy, rather than mm. you know, the joy you have in a nightclub, which can be fun, but it's not um, 
the deep. It's, it's not nurturing your soul. Mm. Your soul is incredibly sensitive. It's everyone's born with, with and a soul is just our original instinctive self. Uh, you know, it's been sort of muddied by religions, but really our soul is our that part of us which believes in good. And everyone is fundamentally good. The, re- the reason that they may not be um, outwardly good as a, as a person is because of what they've experienced in, in life. Yeah, so... And it's very subtle. Yeah. You, you might look at someone, but they had a perfect upbringing, but actually, if you go under the surface, then that's where it's happening. It's the, it's the you know, the, the very nuanced, um, you, you know, parents can look like model parents, but if there's no love there, it, you know, love is not something like, um, you know, getting good toys for, for, for your birthday, having, you know, an impeccable house. Love is a is a feeling. It's um, it, it it's it's um, it's got no ego in it. It's and unselfish. it's unconditional. It's unconditional. That's yeah. what unconditional love is. So does this play out for you? You know, striving towards, I guess, let's call it this sense of self. Does this um, play out for you in the little things that you do in the way you live your life? For instance, I'm thinking nutrition or sleep or meditation practices or any you know are there any tangibles that we as listeners to this podcast could take away and go I could try that this could take me one step closer to this ideal that we're talking about well I think if if you yeah I think so I think connecting with yourself your real self is really important and that psychologically it means uh, looking you don't want to delve too much into your past because I think that can be destructive. It can be really, um, you know, especially if you're, um, you know, you've had a, a really tough time. I think it'd be really destructive. But you just need to understand that, okay, I might, I don't need, to, I don't need to be feeling bad about myself. You wake up in the morning and say, okay, I don't, okay, I don't have to prove myself. I, I am fundamentally good. I, you know, like I am for good reason. But I want to now help myself by getting back in touch with myself. Who, 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 who am I really? And, and uh, part of that is, okay, I want to look after myself. I want to love myself, not hate myself. Because, um, you know, bad health and fitness has a lot to do with not liking yourself. Yeah. If you like yourself, then you will be careful about... Well, first of all, you, you will try and get um, in yourself in a situation where you're not eating because it's, you're compelled to eat. You're eating because you feel like eating. So we're really talking about self-compassion here, aren't yeah. we, at this yeah. point? But it's funny because in our modern society, selfishness is almost seen as as a negative, whereas everything you're talking about is like almost putting yourself first in a place where you then can launch from to help others. Is that correct? Yes, but it's not, um, you're not looking after yourself to have Fulfill an awesome-looking body. Yeah. It's looking after yourself to... Um, be whole again and and um, you know to, to, to love yourself not to be narcissistic but to love yourself for its natural self and, and the fact that 
Um, see, a narcissistic person is really someone who's um, 100% selfish. Yeah. And, and, and is not, um, not capable of any empathy towards other people. But if you, if you are, um, if you truly love yourself, then you not only have empathy for yourself, and, you're, and, and un, empathy means understanding, um, you know, deeply understanding a situation. You have empathy for other people. And, mm. and if you put yourself in someone else's shoes, so to speak, Someone once said that to me when I started Find Your Feet and I probably wasn't in the greatest place when I did start Find Your Feet and we were coaching adults and trying to help adults and then I also developed this love of life coaching and they turned to me one day and said, Han, unless you look after yourself first, you can't look after others. Think of it like giving a gift. You're trying to give a gift to someone to improve their quality of life and yet all they see is the person receiving the gift, not the gift you're giving them. And that, to me, was a real turning point for me, and I think that's exactly what we're talking about here. But I'm also kind of interested to know that if you reach this ideal place, is that at a point where then if we can quiet down a lot of the negative chatter that you can hear that intuition and your thoughts and your dreams kind of coming through stronger? Because I think... I think, you know, in our ideal world, and my correct, or correct me if you think I'm wrong in this, but we try to to live and by listening to our intuition and what it's telling us to do a little bit. And that stems from a whole world of experience behind the intuition, but sometimes that gets overmasked by society's pressures saying you should do this, you could do that, you know. It does. Do yeah, it does. Um, it does a lot, and I think that's... Whereas, you know, the modern technology is an incredible uh, tool for communicating. However, uh, it's also, it's a double-edged sword because it, it, you know, things like social media give us, I mean, it's such a tempting um, place to go to feed your um, insecurity. Yeah. Or to try and stem your insecurity. And to boost the ego. Well, that's it. You, boost, yeah. you want to boost your ego because you want to stem your insecurity. And, and the, the, the problem is, though, it's actually, um, it's a, you get into a spiral where it's it just a, it makes the situation worse. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the value, again, that's the value of um, getting out into nature, away, getting unplugged, um, because it, when you, when you are, in modern life, it's very hard to divorce yourself from instant access, instant communication to uh, letting your, your peers know, you know, that you're having a great time and, and um, just, you know, getting all those little boosts by, you know, people liking you and all that sort of stuff. It is a, it's an incredibly dangerous trap because yeah. it just leads to constant, um, it's a treadmill. It really is a treadmill, and yeah. it doesn't lead to any 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 um, improvement in the quality of your. And it's probably unrealistic to devoid ourselves from modern technology. And I know that you run, as we've mentioned, or helped found Cedar Summit. Or you are a founder of Cedar Summit. 
so how important how have you juggled running a business or helping to run a business that has now become a global phenomenon with trying to I guess live in some ways this sort of simpler it's not simple life but it but it's a quieter life where you are looking after and nurturing you and yourself kind of curious because I guess I'm sitting in this that's a good question yeah Uh, I think it's it You've got to try and... It's a constant uh, discipline to manage your life so that you have some balance, so that you do get away, um, because it can be... A business can be all-consuming. And I'm very lucky that I have a good team that, um, you know, I can rely on to help... um, or basically run the business and um, I hope that and it, it has changed a lot the business has changed a lot it's no longer a small business and, and now as you say we're a, a global concern and we've got more people re- relying on us and there's more responsibility and all that but if you lay good foundations and which means you've got um, not only good people but good systems in place then uh, it's possible to achieve um, success in business or continued success in business and a, um, a, a, a life that is worth living. Because mm. you can turn it into one that's not worth living very, very easily. Yeah. You give in to the um, notion that, you know, you've got to... Um, well, you, you can't relinquish control to, to others. So what role do you play in Cedar Summit now, Tim? My role is really um, mainly overviewing as a director, um, just overviewing what, what we, you know, direction we're going. Uh, um, and I suppose as an ambassador for the brand to um, keep, it, uh, keep us honest about that we you know still a bona fide uh, outdoor connected business with a passion for you know travel in, in through the natural world I've had grapples in now working in retail which was something I never ever thought that I would do bless Graham who dragged me into this one head first but I've had grapples with this concept of an environment which is getting greater and greater struggle, you know, as in human nature is using and using and using. And then I guess for me selling stuff, which is probably contributing to the consumerism mentality. Like, do you grapple with that? Is how, um, yeah, I'm just curious. I would have once upon a time, but I now know that the, the, the bigger picture really is, okay, you look at it like this: the world is a is a really rusty ship, okay? And um, you know we've got to plug the leaks. <laughs> that's for sure. So the leaks have got to be, you know, it's really important, and that, and, and so forth. Therefore, it's important to uh, you know make sure we don't totally destroy the environment. But um, we've got to make sure that this ship gets through um, to the other side of the stormy sea. And um, in order to do that, uh, we've got to maintain a um, 
we've actually got to come to an understanding of the human condition, and we won't come to an understanding of the human condition if we get sidelined too much. Uh, if everyone goes and starts trying to plug the leaks and, and, and um, you know, worrying about, you know, trying to reduce the rust and all that, when, uh, and no one takes, takes um, is concerned about where the ship's going, because, um, just say, there are, there are all these forces which are wanting to um, put the ship off course. Um, and um, because, as a species, we're very insecure, uh, we and we feel bad about ourselves. Um, you know, we used to have... We, we, we turned um, what, what sound people said, and when I say sound people, people like um, um, Moses and Abraham and Muhammad and Buddha and Christ, we turned what they said into religions because... They gave us guidance, for sure. They, they, they gave us guidance. So, um, and now that is almost too confronting for us. So we turn now to other, other things which make us, make us more superficial things in a way which make us feel good, and that is uh, we can become an environmentalist, we can become um, someone who's um, pushing for equal rights in marriage, or and there's lots of these causes which are all worthy in their own, but, but they're not... The main game. The main game is to make sure that psychologically we reach um, maturity. And if we get sidetracked by all of these other things, then it's it's um, we'll lose because the ship will get off course. Will we be able to reach full development before we? <laughs> That's the ultimate. Screw the planet. That's, Excuse the language. That, yeah, no, that's the that's big question. I mean, Because it feels like and, from and, and a young it, person we are running out of time and I even question these days whether I should be jumping on an aeroplane or, you know, like... Yeah, yeah. but I think you've got to um, also understand that the... Um, you know, we, it's very easy to get into a... Um, catastrophic uh, Armageddon mentality mm-hmm. uh, but the planet has been around for a long time and it is a it, it is a, an incredible system of um, it is an incredible self-regulating system so um, you know I'm, my hope is and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure is that we will um, manage to get to a point where we can reach Maturity and manage our psychology before the planet becomes uninhabitable. But I think before it becomes uninhabitable, we, we and and if we didn't reach this point of uh, psychological maturity, then I think um, the well depression, psychological depression, and warfare will be what does us in. Not climate change. Not climate change. Really? Because the planet is... But we'll probably really be warfaring resilient. over resources due to climate change. Well, maybe, but I think it's more due to, due to, due to insecurities, which means greed and um, depression. Okay. I, uh, that's huh. what I think. I mean, you look at the, the, the fastest growing um, medical problem on the planet is depression. Yeah. And, um, you know, it is reaching a, a crescendo. Um, because, you know, we 
we are terribly insecure, but there's, there is an answer there. And, you know, it seems like, well, it seems like a very big call and almost like um, hubris to say, well, you know, there's this boy from the Australian bush called Jeremy Griffith who come up with this idea and, you know, like, he's, he's solved the human condition, but he, I suppose, you know, I've tried for, what, 35 years to, to you know, to put a hole in his argument. I can't. It's, it's, it's the real deal. Interesting. It's so much food for thought. I'm, I'm aware that you are a busy man and have a busy schedule tonight. So I just wondered if I could just bounce some things off to short answer questions, but I'm interested in a few things. So um, introvert or extrovert? <laughs> um, depends where you put me. I think I'm in the middle. I can be introverted and I can be extroverted. Okay, So good answer. Yeah. <laughs> what about optimist or pessimist? I'm an optimist, for sure. Yeah, it's coming through. Um, school of nutrition, vegan, plant-based, normal? Predominantly plant-based. Plant-based. Um, occasionally animal products. Mm-hmm. I, think, um, I think environmentally there is an argument for um, having some animal foods, but I don't like the idea of, of killing animals. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea. I, said, I hate the modern forms of, of uh, meat production. I, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, um, that's something that will change. I mean, that will, that will change. Once the human condition is solved, <laughs> Jeremy goes on that we'll, we'll develop a cow that will grow an extra bit of meat that we can carve off. I mean, the Maasai do it. They, they actually, you know, part of the, um, a cow's blood is part of their diet mm. and they have a hole in the, in the uh, jugular vein or, I think it's a drug domain that they have a plug in. And they, Horrible. <laughs> at least they're not killing the cow. <laughs> um, focus training to keep fit or playfulness? Uh, playfulness, I think, yeah. Mainly rock climbing still? Um, yeah, I do a little bit of... Um, I, I rock climb, so um, I, I'm, I used to run a lot, but I'm starting to get... Um, I think I've carried too many heavy packs without using walking poles, and I've got a bit of arthritis in one hip. The running kind of exacerbates that, so I, I mountain bike a lot now. Okay. Uh, would you return to Everest? No. Well, if it was, if you gave me the job of, um, okay, Tim, your brief is to, uh, and you've got the full cooperation of the Chinese and Nepalese governments. Your brief is to fix the mountain. I'd go back. Otherwise, no. Mm. We've got plenty of ideas how I can do it, but it's a disaster zone. It's yeah. it's actually the perfect. It's it's the perfect microcosm of the human condition. It really is. You've got the the problem there is ego. That's you know people want to climb the top. They you know want to brag about it. And I'm, you know one of them, and it's just destroyed the place. It's totally destroyed it. I mean. You've got thousands of people and there's, there's no sanitation. And they've yeah. kind of all got these rules. They never, you know, it's just so dysfunctional. But anyway, let's mm. not go there. Um, greatest fear? Um, yeah, I have to be honest on that one. And I think it's not being liked or... Um, practically falling in a crevasse unroped (laughs) 
What's your first thought or attitude when you get out of bed in the morning? I like to put the boil some water and have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> you and me, man. Oh, I love it. Um, and final one is if you could give some words of wisdom to your younger self now, what would it be? Um, be humble. Yeah. Yeah, be humble, I think. Brilliant. We might finish on that, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate learning about the human condition, but also feeding off your enthusiasm for the mountains because I feel like there's a little bit of a kindred spirit in there. (laughs) Thank you.